Well, welcome back to our weekly podcast, which is a review of the Making of a Champion series. This is our fourth week in the series. In the first week, we laid a foundation for why we need champions, why it's important, and also a process for why change is essential and how we can change. And then from there, we moved into some of the qualities of championship performance, what I'm calling the essential inner qualities, all of which fit together, combine together, to produce a person who is able to perform at excellent capacity, excellent level, and do it consistently. Let me remind you of one of the things that we've said about champions, and that is that it's not that champions never lose. It's that champions know how to bounce back from loss. Champions know how to pick themselves up on the other side of loss, and they even know how to lose in a way that's gracious. And as we'll see when we look at today's quality, they know how to lose in a way where they don't cast the blame for their poor performance on someone else. But anyway, after we laid a foundation, we moved into a couple of the internal qualities that a champion has. We said the first is an intense desire. There's uh, a separate podcast on that if you'd like to go back and listen to that. The second of the qualities is a personal internal self-awareness. And as I've already suggested, if it weren't for the fact that in order to be great at something you have to want it, if it weren't for that simple idea, I would suggest to you that self-awareness is the single greatest quality of championship performance. Well, today we're going to look at a third quality that is absolutely essential, and it fits into this formula that I've been suggesting to you that it takes more than one quality to produce greatness. And all of these qualities fit together. All the qualities not only fit together, but they interlock in such a way as each supports the other and makes and enhances its ability. So what I'd like you to do from this moment on, from, from this podcast on, I'd like you to be looking for the connection between individual qualities. See how one supports another. See how one enhances another. See how one makes another possible or possible at a deeper level. And before we get into that, let me suggest to you this simple idea. It's that everything that we're going to look at, whether it be an intense desire or a self-awareness or what we get into in a couple of minutes, our quality for the day, these are not new ideas. You've heard them before. You have probably heard most of what I'm going to say at one time or another in your life. So it's not as if there's going to be many, oh my word, aha, I never heard that before in my life moments throughout any of this. It's simply a matter of the way we're going to introduce each one of these and connect them and be reminded of them. Uh, there's a principle that suggests that most of us need about 85% of the things that we hear to be reminders of what we already know and only about 15% new information. In other words, if we get more than about 10 to 15% new information, we simply can't handle it at any given time. We don't know what to do with it. But we're extremely poor at continuing to live out what we already know is true, what we already know is right, and what we already know we should be doing. Well, that's the case with all this. All I'm doing is reminding us of things that we already know individually and helping you to see that there is significant connection between them and then helping you to figure out what to do with them. That's my goal. Well, it, that brings us to another important point, and that is that if all these ideas are fairly commonplace. In other words, they're easily accessible to every human being. Why aren't there more champions in the world? Why do most people perform at an ordinary or an average level and only a few people perform at a high at a high level? And why do so few people win in a sustained way? In other words, win at what they do over a long period of time? Well, the answer is that while ordinary people use truths in an ordinary way, High-performing people tend to use the same truths but get more out of them. Two people hear an idea, two people read an idea, two people listen to something. One says, okay, I kind of know that. I, I, maybe I'll change my life a little bit, but I get that already. Another person says, let me see if there's anything new I can learn from this. Sure, maybe I've heard it five times before. Maybe I've heard it 25 times before, but is there anything new that I can take away from it this time? In other words, champions never waste an opportunity to improve their skill set or improve their knowledge set. They let nothing go to waste. All right, back to our review from last week. Uh, the, the concept from last week was self-awareness. And 
I'll do this in three steps. I'll say I'll make a case for the importance of self-awareness by saying this. I can't fix what I don't know is there. I can't fix what I don't know is broken. In other words, when I look inside my life or when I look at my performance level, I can't adjust for something that I don't already know exists. So self-awareness helps me to be able to look boldly into my flaws, not look away from them, not excuse them. Brutal self-awareness helps me to look inside myself and say, this is really who you are, not who you pretend to be to the world, not who you even pretend to be to your close friends. This is really who you are. And subsequently, this is the way you truly perform. You might make a show of doing this or that, but this is the way you know that you really perform as it relates to how you could perform. So for instance, if your five-year-old is able to walk across the room without stumbling or falling, that might be an achievement. If you're 25 and you're looking at that as a major achievement, well, that it probably isn't. Well, in the same way, we never benchmark our personal performance of what somebody else can do. Perhaps we should already be able to perform at a much higher level. So I never look to my left and my right and say, oh, well, I'm doing as well as he is. That's what makes people average. Average is looking to your left, looking to your right, saying that's about the way they do it, and I guess I'll do it the same way. Exceptional championship performance is not measuring yourself against others. It's measuring yourself against the best that you've ever done and determining whether or not there's anything more that you can give to that in the way of skill or knowledge that would help you tomorrow to be one click better than you are today. So the first value of self-awareness is it helps you to see yourself so you can fix yourself. But we've also said that there's a big problem with that. That while I'm the only one that's able to look inside myself and know my emotions, my physicality, my state of being in the moment, I'm the only one who can accurately gauge that because I'm the only one who knows what's going on inside myself. That when it comes to skill, I'm usually not the best judge of that. It's usually best to have some trusted confidants who can speak into my life and say, okay, you're doing okay at that right now, but I know you have more to give. Or even, you're doing okay at that, but I believe you have more to give. And by allowing others whom we trust and who have some authority to speak into our lives, in other words, they know enough about what we do to be able to speak intelligently into our lives, by allowing or giving permission to trusted confidants to speak into our lives like that, we give ourselves the best opportunity to set ourselves up for future high performance. All right, enough about making the case for it. Uh, how do I achieve some level of self-awareness? And we said that the single biggest factor that can help us to do that is simply alone time. Get alone with myself apart from distractions. And we define being alone as not having outside inputs in other words, not reading anything more, not listening to anything more, not watching anything more, not even being with other people. It's a matter of getting alone and quiet so that you can look at what is already in there. And this improves, incidentally, with time. The first time you spend time by yourself thinking carefully and accurately about who you are, perhaps even writing down some ideas, that's something I haven't mentioned before, but it might be very helpful for you to keep a journal of your discoveries about yourself. How do you think you are doing emotionally? How do you think you're doing intellectually? How are you managing your physicality, uh, getting the proper rest, getting the proper nutrition? Uh, getting the proper exercise, all that stuff. How are you managing that? Maybe you want to keep a journal where you note that so that you can look back on it six months later, a year later, two years later, and say, well, this is the way I was typically feeling a year ago. This is the way I'm feeling now. Now, admittedly, you'll be somewhat biased because you live inside your own skin, and it's extremely difficult to measure yourself when you live in yourself. But nonetheless, Monitoring yourself over a period of time will help you to not only improve at the process of monitoring, but it will help you to look at your, at your progress. All right. And then we said the next thing is that it's not enough to know myself. I also have to be able to make changes in the moment. And we use the illustration of a mantra. When it comes to every one of these qualities that we're going to look at, 
all eight or ten, depending on how many we go through, of the qualities of championship performance, you should have a short phrase or a three- or a four-word mantra that brings you back into peak alertness and peak performance state when you start to lose it. The easiest way to see that is how our emotions tighten up and our vision almost tunnels when we get into an argument with somebody. We become so focused emotionally on proving ourselves right or proving the other person wrong or just focusing on that person that we can become oblivious to everything around us and to the opportunity to simply step back. We get literally sucked into a vortex that we emotionally find it difficult to escape from. I've never talked to anyone who didn't, when you when you talk to them about this, acknowledge that, yeah, that is in fact true, that the deeper we get sucked into an argument, the more intense it becomes until there's either an explosion or a breakdown or something. So just as an example, if you want to be a champion when it comes to relationships, you've got to be able to monitor your state when you get to the point where you know you're being sucked into something and you won't be able to extract yourself. A three or four word mantra such as, Stop, think, detach. And, and I just made that up on, on the fly, so that's probably not the best one. But stop, think, detach. That might be a good one to help us break that cycle of getting sucked further into something that we're only going to regret once we're in there. I, again, just the same as most people acknowledge that they've all experienced this being sucked into something emotionally, almost everyone acknowledges later that they're not particularly proud of, of that moment in their life. It wasn't one of the finest moments in their life. And they honestly, for the most part, have some regrets about it. So if we don't want to live with regret about our performance in the future, we need to plan in the present so that we can avoid poor performance in the future. Incidentally, hearkening back to, to last week's illustration of the mantra that I said that uh, commercial airline pilots use, which is aviate, navigate, and communicate, one of the things that we need to remember is that every commercial airline pilot has a carefully thought through emergency plan. He's not just given a mantra, but there is a carefully planned, well thought out process by which a commercial aviator has to deal with a crisis. What do I check first? What do I check second? What do I check third? What what are my mission-specific strategies when I get into a jam? Now, what's really insightful about this is to realize that all those plans for a crisis was made well in advance of the fact that there was a crisis. In other words, the airline for which that pilot flies has already anticipated that not every day will be a good one and not every bird will stay in the sky and that there are going to be some difficult, perhaps some traumatic, perhaps even some lethal moments where good things are not going to happen. Wouldn't it be better to just be right up front about that as a champion and say, you know what, there are going to come bad days in my life. There are going to perhaps even come bad seasons in my life. I need to prepare for how I'll respond to them by having a plan that would make sense and have that in place in advance so that I can consult it. Okay, I think that's enough of a review, so let's jump into the new material. I've probably kept you waiting long enough. What is this third quality? And the third quality is humility. And I know you're probably tempted right now to yawn and say, really, that's the best you've got? But again, remember what I said before about taking simple ideas but looking at them more deeply. So what I'm going to invite you to do before you dismiss the quality of humility as being irrelevant to championship performance, I'd just like you to give this a fair hearing and see if there isn't something additional that you can learn from this. Because here's what we all know when we're honest. We all struggle with humility at one time or another in our lives. Everyone, everyone battles humility the, the, or, or its opposite, which is pride. And there's a lot of negative things happen to otherwise intelligent people when they allow pride to get the best of them. That alone should be a wake-up call and a real alert to any of us. We've looked out and seen the biggest, the best, and the brightest in all fields of life that were tripped up by pride. So let me ask you this. If the best 
actually world-class performers in whatever they do can be tripped up by pride. People who have money to access all the best personal coaches, all the best legal advice, all the best financial advice, if the best and the brightest that exist around the world can be tripped up by pride, don't you think you and I can be tripped up in the exact same way? That's why I say sometimes simple things that we take for granted are actually critical things to our success. So let me start by reading this simple verse out of the Proverbs. Again, so simple we might almost want to dismiss it. When pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with humility comes wisdom. So the writer of this proverb jumps right into the meat of it and says, Look, proud people come to bad ends. He goes right from pride to disgrace. He doesn't do that with humility, though. What he says with humility is humility brings to us the opportunity to gain wisdom. Now, obviously, being humble arrive, allows us to arrive at wisdom, which can lead to success. The writer doesn't even allow for a three-step process when it comes to the person who is prideful. The person who is prideful, he says, you may as well just draw a line right from step one right to step three, from pride to disgrace. There's no point at even stopping in the flailing around or trying to fool other people phase because it always goes sideways and it always ends up in disgrace. But he says, humility only offers you the opportunity to get wisdom. It still doesn't ensure your success. I think that's a critical understanding right there. Pride will almost guarantee your failure at some point. Humility does not guarantee your success, it only guarantees that you have the best opportunity to become wise so that you can pursue success. From there, let's jump into a quote by a popular author, Rick Warren. Perhaps some of you have heard of him before. He says, some people would rather appear wise than be wise. They would rather not look unwise by asking for help or guidance than become wise by first appearing unknowing. And so this is my reinterpretation of that. The, the trap of pride is a commitment to preserve my illusion of what isn't true about me, which is that I know something, my commitment to preserve an illusion of that rather than to temporarily admit that I don't know something. And what does that force me to do? It forces me to present to the rest of humanity an act. I have this together, I have this figured out, I know what I'm doing. And so in order to preserve the act, or the in order to preserve the illusion of having wisdom, I never get the real thing. Now just think about that. In order to preserve the illusion of my being a wise person, I never open up to the to seek out additional counsel, and therefore I never ultimately become wise. So you can either put on a good act or you can develop the real thing, but it seems as if you actually can't do both, or not at the same time. All right, well, that brings us to a real struggle that we have. Why is it that with all this useful information out there on the value of humility, that we all struggle with pride? See, if we all know that humility brings the best results because humility allows us to admit what we don't know and therefore pursue what we need to know, why is it that we all seem to struggle with pride? Here's the way I word it in step one, and I'm going to walk us through a quick seven-step map that helps us to diagnose our own situation. Well, here's the first step. We're all born ignorant and incapable. When you were born, you were helpless. The, about the only thing you knew how to do was cry, and everything in your life was an expectation. Someone had to do something for you. And every thought in your life was toward self-survival, self-orientation. That's the way every human being is born. Incapable of doing almost anything for themselves, screaming to get attention so that someone will do something for them, having expectations that someone will do something for them, and a complete orientation toward themselves. From there on, we need to learn how to be able to take care of ourselves. Now, I know that to be true about me. At least that's what my mom told me. You probably know that to be true of you because one of your parents or some other sibling told you that, yeah, that's the way you are too. We all know that to be true of everyone in life. And yet we somehow forget that. 
or we pretend that some people in life actually know more than we do because somehow, what, they magically acquired that information? Of course not. Everyone is born, if you'll permit me to say this, everyone is born stupid and has to recover from it. And that's the process of growing into maturity, is the process of gaining useful knowledge. So what's the cure for this ignorance? Well, the cure for it is to develop skills, to acquire learning, to receive coaching, to accept constructive criticism, ouch, that one hurts, and to continue to practice this. Now, this would all be good if we could do this by ourselves, because if, if I could do this learning by myself, well, then I'd never have to reveal to anybody else that I didn't know anything. Here's an athlete's and mental coach's assessment of what produces the fastest learning. Immersive learning, he says, with a teacher or a guide is the fastest way to master certain things. It allows practice, that's my part, with immediate feedback, that's the coach's part, and then with the aid of the coach, that feedback can be evaluated, interpreted, and produce the next round of active practice. In other words, someone is in my life watching me, coaching me, helping me to improve. Now, that sounds so sensible, as long as it's about somebody else. As long as it's somebody else that's being coached. The problem is that none of us likes to be coached because no coach is ever easy on anyone he's coaching. And no coach is really very good if the only thing he does is say, great job, all right, I think you've done enough, go home. A coach's job is not through until he's found something that you're not doing well or has discovered something that you're doing pretty well, that you could do better, and he calls you out on it and challenges you. Why? Well, that's his whole job. If, if he can't help you to improve, then there's no point in having him. So what we know is every coach's mission is to make me a little uncomfortable with what I'm doing already. And no one likes to hear that. So it's no wonder that in these cases, pride is our natural defense and humility is so difficult. My humble response to the coach is, okay, I'll try that again. Or, okay, I can see your point. Or, yeah, I do I do see that I'm not doing that as well as I could. All right. But there's another thing that I think everyone should be aware of. And now I'm certainly going to step on a few toes. If you want to be a humble person, that is a person who is willing to pursue knowledge, pursue learning, admit that you don't have all the answers, and seek out help. If you want to be that kind of a person, and we're building a case for why that is the only kind of a person who can ever succeed long-term in life. So if you want to succeed long-term in life, you're going to have to acquire the, the pursuit, the practice of living humbly. And if you're going to live humbly, I'm going to suggest that you need to surround yourself with other humble people. The greatest obstacle to remaining humble is to continue to live around people who conceal their own flaws while you try to reveal and be open and candid about your flaws and seek to improve them. Because over a period of time, the humble person will start to feel foolish or inadequate in the presence of the person who never reveals that they have any flaws. And what we usually forget, remember coming back to point one, we're all born ignorant, incapable, and helpless, and we grow into everything. Therefore, none of us has ultimately ever arrived at all we could be or should be. But the only person who's willing to admit that is the humble person. So when you hang around with prideful people for any length of time, their commitment to the illusion of knowing is going to have a negative effect on you. It's going to rub off on you. So we're going to pause here for a couple of moments. I'm going to let you take a good mental, personal inventory of where you stand on that. What is it that you need to do next regarding this process of growing into humility? Do you need to just come to terms with the fact that, yeah, you shouldn't know some things that you really thought you should know? Or is it that you are unwilling to sue, to surround yourself with good coaches or people who can help you, even if it makes you feel uncomfortable? Or is it maybe that your collection of friends, your collection of acquaintances, even, even your peer group at work 
that they are committed to the illusion of having it all together rather than to the reality of let's all learn this together and we become like those that we hang around with. Okay, so I'm going to stop now, let you take a little bit of an inventory, and we'll be back. Okay, welcome back. We're going to pick up where we left off, actually move on to a new idea. This one coming from a man by the name of Jocko Willink. Perhaps some of you have heard of him. He's written a few books now. He spent a season of his life as a Navy SEAL, rose to being a platoon commander, I believe. So he's he's handling leadership roles within the SEALs. Well, you, you don't get to be a Navy SEAL without being a person of championship performance to begin with. And you don't rise even further to lead other SEALs unless you've developed additional skill sets. So I believe this man is at least worth con- worth learning from in, in the couple of things that he talks about here when it comes to failure and what people learn from it. So he said that it's been his experience in the past sometimes when he was commanding other men to have them resist doing things that he asked. Uh, sometimes people would think that they just knew a better way. Sometimes, especially the younger guys in a platoon, would just they, they would just assume that they knew how to do something, perhaps something that they had never done in their life before, but they would assume that they knew how to do it better. Well, if you're a seasoned leader in anything, you've undoubtedly encountered that. Somebody that's new to a role and doesn't quite understand all the nuance of it, perhaps hasn't ever actually experienced what it means to perform under pressure, they have some suggestions or recommendations or, frankly, sometimes some very strong feelings about how something should be done, and it may not align nicely with the way that you're pretty sure it should be done. So he said at first he would just resist and push back against them and force them to do something, And what he learned over a period of time is that people are forced to execute on a plan that they didn't create. He says, ultimately, at the first sign of a problem that wasn't accounted for in the plan, at the first sign of that problem, they bail on the mission and come back and say, well, your plan was no good. This didn't work. He said what he learned to do over over a period of his life, and, and not in a single time, but he gradually evaluated different methods to handle this. And he said, one of the things that I started to do was give these younger men more involvement in the planning and actually give some of them some leadership responsibility. Okay, you lead this next mission. You plan it through. You figure out what resources you need, what people you need, and how you're going to move through a city or what you're going to do. You plan this. I said some people would immediately, upon beginning the plan, realize that they were a little in over their head, didn't quite know everything that they thought they knew, and come back to them for help. Other people wouldn't. Uh, For whatever reason, they decided they could figure it out on their own. Uh, And of those two, well, some failed and some succeeded. And so he ended up with three types of people. People who, even in the planning phase, were willing to come back to him and say, hey, I admit it, I thought this was going to be pretty easy. Now that I see everything that goes into the planning, I realize I don't know everything that I need to know. Could you help me? He said, well, heck, progress has been made. Somebody's moved from being sure of themselves to doubting themselves and humble and ready to be taught another group of the people he said well they'd go out and they'd try to execute on the plan that they hadn't sought any help for and a lot of times it would backfire and go bad and he said i had to weigh out the the costs of this to make sure that human life wasn't going to be risked by this but sometimes people would come back and they had failed at their mission he said but there was a third option of those of those two groups of people who didn't get help. He said there were occasions when people who acted out on a plan of their own that was quite different than mine, they came back and they were successful. So here is what Will Inc. is demonstrating. First, he is demonstrating humility on his own. There may actually be a better way than mine. And I'll give people the opportunity to plan something, and perhaps I'll learn something. But he also set up an interesting training opportunity for people to in a safe way, start to experiment at the ragged edges of their skills and abilities and knowledge. Some sensed immediately they needed help. Some failed before they sensed that they needed help. But here's what he noticed about the people who attempted something without help and later on failed at it. He said that there were two responses that every human being that found themselves in that situation could offer. The first was, They learned from the failure. 
Perhaps it was they learned to seek help earlier. Perhaps it was they actually learned some additional things about planning or execution of a mission. One way or another, their commitment was to learn from the failure. But he said there was a different type of person, the second type of people, he said, simply blamed others for the failure. So there were, on the at the other side of the failure, there were learners and there were blamers. And the blamers were really learners and the learners were rarely blamers. And so each of us, I think, needs to take a personal inventory. This comes back to self-awareness. So there, right there, I'm introducing you to how two principles of championship performance are intimately connected together. Self-awareness, after the fact, helps me to see what I need to do differently, but it also reveals, are there any character flaws in me? Is it my tendency to blame others for my failure, or is it my tendency to own full responsibility for my failure? Is it my tendency to try to hide my failure, or is it my tendency to be open about the failure so that I can learn? And if we make the assumption, as I think it's safe to make in this case, that it would be impossible to learn from the failure and hide it at the same time, this brings us to a very challenging thing. Am I willing to be open about the failure, even if others are going to find out, but also so that I can learn from it? All right, enough of that. Give yourself just a couple of minutes right now to think that through, and we'll be right back. Okay, and welcome back. Now, I never know who's listening to this or who some who one of our listeners is going to share this with. So I never make the assumption that everybody who would listen to this material is what we'll call a Christian. In other words, somebody who follows after Jesus. That's a, that's a useful definition for being a Christian. Someone who says, I really trust Jesus. I trust what he said. I trust what he did. I trust that I can follow after him. And he'll bring to me the best possible results in my life. And he'll bring to me the best possible outcomes for all the people whose lives I interact with. So I'm committed to following Jesus. Well, a few weeks ago, for those of you who are followers of Christ and, and get this, a few weeks ago I went to a Christian concert. If you've ever been to one of them, you, you get the basic setting. And a few different Christian performing bands get up there and they sing some of their well-known songs. And almost every band or every singer gives some sort of a personal either theology statement, what they believe, what they value, or they give a little bit of the story of their lives and how God has turned some things around in their lives. Sometimes it's inspiring, sometimes it's a little ordinary, but generally it's well received by the crowd. Well, a couple of weeks ago when I was in the audience at this concert, Someone said the kind of thing that sounds like the American flag and apple pie and baseball and all those things that we all love and couldn't possibly disagree with. He said that we as Christians are the carriers of Jesus and the servants of Jesus, and Jesus is the hope of the world. Well, everybody immediately cheered. Everybody was all over that. Jesus is the hope of the world. Well, heck, if you grew up in church, you've heard that dozens of times. Jesus is the hope of the world. Well, Perhaps not surprisingly, I had a bit of a problem with that because it expresses a truth, but it leaves out a few of the important details that connect the statement, Jesus is the hope of the world, from the reality that there is that hope being played out in the world. And here's what I want to introduce you to, which brings us to the challenge of humility that's sometimes absent in that statement. The only way that Jesus is actually the hope of the world is if we who follow Jesus are willing to submit to him and live our lives according to what he asks us to do. In other words, we read his teachings, we learn his teachings, we personalize his teachings, we make them our own method for living, our own method for relating to other human beings, our own method for coping with temptations in life and all that, we take Jesus' teachings and put them into practice in our own lives and attempt to, by that, enrich the world, influence the world, and in that way we improve the world. In other words, Jesus becomes the hope of the world through us. Because you see, if we're not willing to submit to Jesus' rightful, and we'll throw in this Christian term, lordship there, if we're not willing 
to submit to his rule or leadership in our lives, then the only way that Jesus could ever be the hope to the world is if he took us out of the world. Because Jesus himself does not come down usually and fix problems. He invites his followers to fix problems. He steps into our lives and works with us as we open our lives to him. And we offer the areas of our lives to him to have influence in them. And then he uses us to be the hope to other people. So the next time you're tempted to use a what we'll call simplistic statement, such as Jesus is the hope of the world, don't dismiss it. But ask yourself this question, is that a simplistic statement that demands a little bit more scrutiny and demands that I dig a little bit below the surface to find the full truth about it? Is Jesus the hope of the world? Yeah, I believe he is. Is the local church the hope of the world? The local church being those who are committed to following Jesus and they get together, that's the local church? Yeah, I believe it is. But all that's only true if we, the people in the local church, are actually committed to following Jesus. And that's not always true. Okay, I'd like to move on to another personal matter that every one of us needs to look inside ourselves, back to the self-awareness issue, and ask ourselves if any of these qualities are true about us. There's four qualities that we're going to talk about uh, right now, and I'm going to introduce them one at a time. And every one of these qualities, in no particular order, is extremely destructive to our ability to be humble. The first of these qualities is skepticism. That is, I doubt things. Now, a certain amount of skepticism is healthy. We've all heard of healthy skepticism. Uh, when the snake oil salesman comes around, don't buy that stuff. It doesn't cure everything. When the politician promises you that he's going to make your life better, uh, approach what he says with a measure of healthy skepticism. That's good. The problem with skepticism is when it enters all areas of our lives and we don't feel comfortable trusting anyone with anything that they've said. And in that process, we become bitter and distrustful of almost everything and pretty much build walls around ourselves. So the skeptical person is never open to being curious, never desires to take the risk of learning from people that he might not know. He's especially doubtful of anything new, and therefore he never never has the chance to learn everything that he could. Skepticism can sometimes get in the way of important learning that we need to do. It is what we'll call an enemy of an open heart. That's how I'm describing all of these. They are enemies of an open heart. So skepticism is the first one. Cynicism is the second one, and cynicism is perhaps uh, the, the child of skepticism. Cynicism is a constant doubt about something working. Well, we've done that before. It's never worked in the past. Why would it work now? Again, if you're doing it exactly the same way with the same people, uh, with all the same ingredients at the same time of the year, the same temperature, whatever it is, maybe it won't work because you're just repeating the formula from before. But if you're trying to achieve something and you're using some new methodology, but there are cynics surrounding you, the cynics are going to pull down your, your desire to excel. And, and this is another one of the challenges that we have to talk about. And I talked about it before when it comes to people who are not, are not humble, who pretend that they know it all. But when you and I surround ourselves with skeptics and cynics, we soon become like them. And even if we don't actually become like them in our inner man, we pretend to be like them so that we fit in. And I'm not saying we're all chameleon-like, that we all change our colors and, and do something different just to fit in with everybody. I'm not saying that we're all that shallow, but every human being actually does adjust his patterns of, of speech and his behavior and his thinking, at least his external behavior, a little bit to try to fit in with the people that he has to interact with. So in the, being in the presence of cynics all the time who never think anything will work and always are doubtful of everything, 
is going to make us that way at least a little bit. Well, the third quality of an open heart, or enemy of an open heart, is to be jaded. To be jaded is to allege in your own mind, if nowhere else, that you've seen it all, that you've done it all, that there's nothing new that you could learn, that you have moved beyond this ordinary life. So a jaded person is never open to appreciating all the beauty around them. Well, I've seen a sunset before. What's the big deal? Well, I don't know about you, but I've seen plenty of great sunsets. I loved every one of them, and I look forward to seeing the next one. The jaded person says, eh, what's the big deal? A jaded person, upon eating a great meal, would say, you know, I had a great meal last week at another great restaurant. There's nothing so special about this. The problem with a jaded heart is that it's never fully open to appreciate anything. And underneath, what this does is actually mask a sense of pride that says, nothing is quite up to my standards. Everything is ordinary because I am a person of such tremendous discernment. I am such an accurate critic of the qualities of something that I can judge that this is ordinary at best. There is nothing special about this. And so I promise you, if you have sort of a jaded spirit as you go about life, you will wound people, even people close to you, who want to do nice things for you, but every time they do, you'll treat it as just something ordinary. Now, why do people become jaded? Because they don't want to, to play the fool who is always gushing about how everything is wonderful. We've all been in that person's presence, too. No, there are bad meals served. There are ugly sunsets. There is there are paintings and artwork that are not so good, music that's not so good, etc., etc. We get that. But the jaded person takes it to an extreme and says almost everything is ordinary. I don't know about you, but I never want to go through life not being able to appreciate beauty and delight in wonder and experience things and say that's fantastic, and I want to thank you for doing that. Well, the last enemy to a humble heart is sarcasm. Now, if you're at all like me, you'd have to raise your hand and say, yeah, that's me, at least in a little way. Sarcasm is that cutting humor. It's funny. It's always funny. Sarcasm is that cutting humor that sort of finds a flaw with something, finds a fault with something. It's a turn on words that takes a dig at something. And admittedly, it's funny. But the problem is that it puts people down. It cuts their their heart. And, and in the process, the person with a cut heart builds a wall around that so that they can't get wounded. And the person who lives in that way, as the sarcastic humorist, if you will, or the sarcastic commenter, and always does that, that person not only wounds people that are close to him, he wounds people that he may need to help him, and he damages his own spirit in the process. Now, let me repeat these one more time very quickly. The skeptic, the cynic, the person with a jaded sense of life, and, and the person with a cutting sarcasm about him, I don't know about you, but I have to guard against every one of them, and I am tempted at times to be every one of those. I think that's a good point to stop for a couple of minutes and just take a good inventory. Is there something you need to look inside yourself and say, I don't want to be that anymore. I'm going to start to cut that out of my life. Okay, we're back. We've got two more things that I'd like to cover, and that'll wrap up our review for today. The first is considering two types of curiosity and how they relate to humility. And the first I'm going to call a passive curiosity, which leads to a passive humility. And the second is an active curiosity that leads to an active humility. So coming back to the passive curiosity and the passive humility. Passivity, just like it sounds, is waiting for something to come to you. You'll act on something once something comes to you. But a passive person always lets life come to them. He or she never goes to life. 
So when it comes to learning, which we've acknowledged that every humble person is a constant learner, when it comes to learning, the passive person sits and waits for learning to come to them. The passive person doesn't shut down learning, will acknowledge, yeah, I do need to learn, but they only learn what people bring to them to learn. If it comes to their door, knocks on their door and says, I'm here to teach you, they'll open the door and they'll sit down and they'll learn. But the passive person also never goes out of their way to actively pursue knowledge apart from what is thrust on them. So it's far better to be a passive learner than it is to stubbornly refuse to learn because you're so full of pride that you say, nope, I don't need to learn that. It's far better to be passive than to be prideful, but to be passive is not as helpful in your life as to be active. Active means to pursue knowledge in all its forms. And so what I suggest is, if you want to begin the process of becoming more intentional about active learning, do new things, try new things, eat at new places, buy different kinds of reading material, buy different books than you would normally buy, occasionally hang out with different people who have different conversational skills, talk about different things, take a different way to work, develop a hobby that perhaps is thoroughly removed from anything that you would normally do. Uh, I'm not going to tell you that you should take up painting, but hey, maybe if you've never done painting and that's something that would really stretch you a little bit, it would be good. Now, what's the value to this? Remember, champions are always improving all of their skill sets. They're humble enough to acknowledge that they always need to learn so that they can always be improving. That's just part of that championship mantra, that champions are always improving. Well, learning things that are far removed from our commonplace life adds a richness and a texture to our ability to learn, and it teaches us things outside of our normal learning scope. I have discovered some amazing things in learning about art, about literature, about poetry, about science. I have seen I have seen theological breakthroughs in my own life from reading science material. And I don't mean that while well, I look at evolution or create creation in a different way. No, 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 not at all. I have seen different theological breakthroughs simply by looking at scientific principles. And in the same way, I've, by hanging out with different people, had my worldview changed significantly. And so that all came about because I intentionally pursued those opportunities to, to learn from other people, to participate in different things. So I would strongly encourage you to become, first, a passive learner if you're not that already, but secondly, to be an active and intentional learner in every situation and every opportunity. One more thing which we'll come back to in a second, and we'll be wrapped up. Okay, uh, first let me apologize for the fact that this is taking a while. This, this week on humility, there's a lot here. And incidentally, before we wrap this up, let me tell you that there are study notes available for this week. It's a pretty long collection of notes for the week, and also included are 10 reflection questions. Uh, so if you are part of our Saturday Morning Life School or if you're on the email list, you'll probably receive these study notes as part of an email that goes out sometime early in the week along with a link to this podcast. But if you're listening to this podcast and you don't have the, the, haven't had the advantage of having gotten that email and you'd like to see these study notes, let me just remind you again of the email that I've given to you every week, and that is men at mstarqtown.org. That's men at mstarqtown.org. And if you email us, we'll be sure to get you a copy of the study notes, which, as I've said, have these 10 reflection questions at the end. All right. So my final thought for all of us to consider is that there's a different kind of humility, humility that is necessary once we arrive at a, a pinnacle position. In other words, it can sometimes be more challenging to be humble once we're at the top than while we're still struggling to get there. Remember that championship performance is not a single win. It's not even a winning season. 
that the people we think of as champions are champions over a long haul. As I said earlier in, in, in this podcast, sure, there will be times when you'll be down, you'll be in the valley, things will go wrong. But there's many other times when your life is going to reach a pinnacle and you're going to have to decide what to do then. The humble person doesn't stop and rest on that. The humble person says, I'm a steward of all of my life, which means I'm a steward of the rest of my life. What would be the next big adventure, big opportunity that I could capitalize on? What would be the next championship level thing that I could pursue? And remember back to our Foundations Week when we said the champions are those who fight for a worthy cause, to step in and advocate or defend on behalf of someone to speak up for people who have no voice or people who fight for the honor of someone else. Great definitions for championship performance. Well, once you reach a victory, it's easy to become puffed up with pride and say, well, I've reached the top. I am this. There's plenty of other people who tried this and couldn't do that. There's two things I'd like to remind you of that can help us all to get through these times where we've actually made it to the top. The first is to take a careful inventory of all the people and all the things along the way that have helped you to get to that place of success. You might actually want to pause and give God thanks for the many people who have stepped into your life, the many circumstances that he may have orchestrated to bring into your life. If you're a believer in God and you believe that God can do that, I'd encourage you to do that. Because as you do that, you'll be more appreciative of the people and the circumstances, and you'll certainly be more appreciative of God. So that those are the two things that I believe will help us to deal with our temptation to be prideful when we've reached the top. The first is, have your sights set on a new challenge. Never, never staying too long on that pinnacle. The second is, Take a careful inventory of the people and the situations that have helped you to get to where you are. Maybe even reach out and thank them. The process of actually physically thanking, writing letters, making phone calls, sending emails, and say, we've done this, not I've done this, that puts your performance in a proper perspective. Sure, you're on top of that right now. And yes, you did play an important role. Perhaps you played the leading role, but you didn't play the only role. And it's helpful to remember that, and that will really help us to hold our success with dignity rather than hold our success with pride. Okay, guys, I hope this was helpful to you. We'll be back again next week with a review of the topic or the quality of, of champions that we're going to look at next Saturday morning. So I hope to catch up with you again shortly. Really take some time to listen to this material, think through it, maybe journal a little bit on your own. And I'll see you next week.